Now, if you go ahead, find your Bible, and find Romans chapter 10, today is going to be, I freely admit, an atypical Father's Day sermon, but you're atypical fathers, so. The big idea for for what Paul has to say to us this morning, what God has to say to us, rather, is in verse 13, which is the tail end of what we studied last week. I want to read that verse 13 to you before we read our passage today. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the big idea. This is an atypical Father's Day passage, but... I think you'll find it very beneficial to you as fathers. Um, And I'm going to share some implications of our passage today at the end of the sermon. Um, But first, let's just walk through the passage together. It's a straightforward passage. It's not as difficult as the one we tackled last week. In fact, it really will not take us that long to soak in what God has to say in this passage. And you may be heading to your Father's Day lunch a couple minutes early. But I have a track record of saying that and then going late, (laughs) so don't bank on it. But what we're going to study this morning is verses 14 through 17. And in these verses, Paul lays out sort of steps to how people get saved, how people become Christian. It's it's sort of how people get saved part two. In chapter nine, we saw how people become Christians from God's perspective perspective and how sovereign he is over all of that and how in control he is over who becomes a Christian and who doesn't. Um, This passage gives man's perspective. There is work to be done on our end too. Both are true at the same time. God is sovereign over who becomes a Christian and we're responsible. But we're not going to get back into all that. But this passage is how people get saved uh, from man's point of view and also how some people can hear the gospel yet still reject it. It's going to really help us to understand how we came to Christ. It's going to help us to determine if we truly are believers. It's going to help us to see more clearly how to influence the people around us to come to Christ. So it's going to be a beneficial passage for us this morning. And um, I'd like to just read it and then walk through it with you and share just a few thoughts of how this impacts fatherhood. If you would, Would you stand as an expression of honor as we read from Romans 10, verses 14 through 17? I'll start at verse 13, actually. Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, we are about to sit and and hear the word of Christ. Uh, I pray that you would help us to respond in faith. Lord, please do the work that you would like to do in our hearts, in our lives, in our families this morning. Lord, help us to hear, help us to believe, help us to call on the name of Jesus. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So Paul says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus, will be saved. And then in our passage today, he asks a series of rhetorical questions to sort of tease out the process that leads to someone calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. So he's not actually asking how will they call on him whom they have not believed. It's a rhetorical device. He's declaring that they cannot call on him if they do not believe. And he's declaring they cannot believe in him if they haven't heard of him. He's declaring they cannot hear of him unless someone preaches Jesus to them. He's declaring that no one will preach to them if no one is sent to them. So when you rephrase it in the declarative, it packs quite a punch. And it's very clear and very straightforward. If people aren't sent, people are not going to hear about Jesus because no one will be preaching to them. If people don't hear about Jesus, they're not going to believe in Jesus. If people don't believe in Jesus, they're not going to call on Jesus. If people don't call on Jesus, they're not going to be saved. It's that simple. So Paul has been working on this, this in the stratosphere of theology. And then suddenly it's like he slams on the brakes and he gets extremely practical and extremely clear that there's work to be done in light of all this that we've been learning about God's sovereignty and the, the glorious gospel of Jesus. There are things to be done. There are people who aren't calling on Jesus. There are people who aren't believing in Jesus. There are people who've never heard of Jesus. There are people who need to preach. There are people who need to be sent to go out and do this work. So I'd like to just look at these, these verbs that have to take place for people to come to Christ in the hopes that it clarifies for us how we come to Christ and how the people we care about come to Christ. And I know that many of you have that one person or that handful of people that comes to your mind all the time that you worry about, that you love, that you're concerned for. And maybe it's a child of yours. Maybe it's a family member, a relative, a grandchild. Maybe it's your father or a friend or someone at work. Someone you know needs Jesus. Well, there, there are things you can do. And that's what we're going to look at. So, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. But you have to understand that calling on the name of Jesus is more than a magical phrase that makes something magical happen. It's not like open sesame and suddenly heaven opens and God pours down his blessings just because you said Jesus. The calling that Paul's talking about comes from a heart that believes in him, that trusts in him. It's an expression of belief and entrusting. It's like when my kids call on my name or Meredith's name. Well, they don't say Matt and Meredith. They say mom and dad. They're not doing that thinking that if they say dad, that magically they're going to be able to reach whatever it is that they're going for, or magically something good is going to happen. They're saying dad because they trust me. And they know that I'm near and that I'm real and that I love them and that I'll come to their rescue and I'll help them reach those crayons they can't reach or clean up that water that they spilled or whatever. 
That's what calling on the name of Jesus is. It's recognizing that Jesus is near and he's real and he loves us. It's a a shifting of our weight onto Jesus, calling out to him for help. So that person that you're worried about, they don't just need to call out to Jesus. They need to believe in Jesus. And like I said last week, that's not Santa Claus belief. That's pew belief. That's not belief in, like you believe in Santa Claus and hope that if you just believe from your innermost being that this can be real. It's the same kind of belief that led you to just plop down on that pew without inspecting the structure of it. You just entrusted your full weight onto it. And it really does hold you up. That's the belief that, that we need in Christ and that the people we care about need. So calling and believing... I mean, calling requires believing. Believing requires hearing. And this is a subtle point. But if people are going to believe in Jesus, they need to hear of Jesus. Not just see Christians acting Christianly. They've got to hear about Jesus. They have to hear true things about who Jesus is. Many of you have probably heard this phrase, maybe used this phrase. I have used this phrase, and it's dead wrong. Have you heard someone say, I'm going to preach the gospel, and I'll use words if necessary? And it's a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, I don't have to be preaching, talking about Jesus all the time, being one of those weirdos. I'm just going to abstain from drinking beer when I go out with my friends. I'm not going to cuss like a sailor. I'll only watch PG-13 and below movies. And that should do it. Nobody has ever come to Christ because they saw someone acting like a goody-two-shoes. None of you came to Christ because you saw somebody who had a really sweet smile and a sweet disposition. Now that stuff helps and that stuff provides the foundation to tell people about Jesus but no one's going to believe in him in whom they have not heard. And Paul clarifies what he means at the end in verse 17 when he says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And I I take that to mean word about Christ, the explanation of Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he offers, what our response should be. Now, I admit it's a lot harder to talk to someone about Jesus than it is to show them Christianity through how you live. But just showing people Christianity is not enough. They've got to hear the good news. They've got to hear about Jesus. I went to a pastor's retreat a couple weeks ago and... um, part of our assignment was we, we each had to prepare a sermon and then they drew from a hat who would preach. It was from the same passage because we read a book on preaching. And um, so I prepared this sermon and it's from the book of First Timothy. But one of the big things that struck me from that passage was how much Paul emphasized our words. Our words are our primary tools. When it comes to making disciples, Your words are your primary tools. Not your hugs. Not your handshakes. Not even your really good casserole that you invite people over to eat. 
Your words are your primary tools. You know, people are the plan. You know, when you travel in circles and you talk to other pastors and they'll ask kind of typical churchy questions like, what are you doing for outreach? And I've got no problem with outreach programs, but at its core, people are the plan. People have always been God's plan for outreach. You are the program for outreach. People are the program and words are the weapons. So think about your words. How have you been using them? Have you been using them so that people might hear about Jesus and then maybe believe and then maybe call on Jesus? Our words are powerful. God revealed himself in a book full of words. Something to consider. So to call on Jesus requires belief in Jesus. To believe in Jesus requires hearing about Jesus. To hear about Jesus requires preachers. Sent preachers. Now this gets a little tricky because Paul doesn't really clarify exactly who he's talking about. He doesn't clarify if he's just talking about, you know, the guy with the tie and the face mic. Or if he's talking about everyone's responsibility to preach. Because the word preach just means to proclaim, to herald, to say something for people to hear. But there's definitely a sense in which we're all called to preach. We're all called to make disciples. And there's definitely a sense in which we're all sent out to do that work. So I need you to consider before we move on into this passage. Where might God be sending you? to preach the word of Christ, to tell people about Jesus? Is God nudging you toward some specific group of people, some specific person? Maybe it's across the street from you. Maybe it's across the office where you work. Maybe it's across the living room to someone in your immediate family. Are you open to God sending you? That word send is like to dispatch. It's a a superior sending out someone with very specific instructions. Are you open to God sending you in that way? Most likely out of your comfort zone. Maybe even globally. Maybe it's not just across the office and the living room. Maybe it's across the globe. Who do you need to tell about Jesus? I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is bringing people to your minds. I know he brought people to my mind as I studied this. So that's basically the process. It's very straightforward. People are sent to preach. The people hear about Jesus. And some of them believe and call on Jesus and are saved. But he goes on to say that not everybody does believe and call out to Jesus. In verse 15, when he finishes up that thought, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? There's, there's two levels to take this, this last passage. Uh, generally speaking, someone bringing good news is well-received. I doubt any of you have ever hated someone for giving you good news. 
I doubt any of you have ever responded negatively to someone bringing you really good news. You usually look favorably upon that person. If someone burst through those doors right there, even if they were just hideous looking, picture the most hideous looking person you can imagine. But if they burst through those doors in all their ugliness and said, guess what, everybody? I'm paying all your debts off. Credit card debt, mortgage, auto loans, paid off in full. Don't even worry about it. Suddenly, that hideously ugly person becomes the most beautiful person in the world. Because they brought news of freedom and release and rest. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? I was talking to the youth about this Wednesday night, and I was asking, what stops us from speaking openly about Jesus? And a couple of them said, well, I don't want people to punch me in the face or shoot me. I think they thought I meant for them to go down like the worst pockets of Charlotte. Like I was just going to drop them off in the church van and have them just go out and go at it. But the fact is, you're probably not going to get punched in the face or shot because you're bringing good news. This is what we've been talking about in Romans. It's not good advice about what people need to do. It's not, you're not being the morality police when you go out preaching the word of Christ. You're not going out saying, you really should stop doing that. You really should start doing this. You're saying, all your debts have been paid. God made a way for everything you've done to be forgiven in Jesus Christ. This is good news. So there's that sense that you can take these these last couple of verses, but there's a deeper sense that I think Paul is mainly getting at. When he said this, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? And then down a line when he says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? He's quoting from way back in Isaiah, where God basically said, I'm sending preachers to you, Israel, with the good news. And yet many of them did not obey the good news. Remember, a big part of the problem he's solving in this passage is how, how is it that so many people in Israel rejected Jesus? They had all the prophecies and all the promises and all the law. They were God's chosen special people, yet many of them rejected Jesus. Paul's circling back around to that idea. They're not rejecting Jesus because they haven't heard. God sent preachers to them. But apparently, it's possible to hear the preached word of Jesus Christ and still reject it. It's possible to hear sent preachers proclaiming Jesus and to not obey the gospel, to never change, to never accept that news. So I'm always putting this before you because I'm responsible for you. I know you've heard of Jesus, but hearing isn't enough. Don't be like Israel. Examine your heart. Have you believed? Are you calling on Jesus? Have you shifted your weight over onto Jesus? Which is what belief means. Are you putting a significant amount of your weight on Jesus? Do you depend on him? I saw in a sitcom recently where, in sitcoms, husbands are always idiots. Not like real life at all, where we're dashing and brilliant. But on this sitcom, the husband built a porch by hand because he was too cheap to hire a contractor. He was too cheap to buy a power saw, too. He just bought a little hand saw. 
and they show him like jumping up on the board to split it in half because he couldn't saw it. But he built the porch by his own hands and his wife was trying to be supportive and, you know, that act like she believed in his porch building skills. And it showed her walking on the porch with a tray of drinks. And you could tell that she did not want to put her weight on that porch. And I'm just curious how many of us, you know, we, we like the idea of believing in Jesus, but we're hesitant to actually put our full weight on these things that we hear about Christ. Have you shifted your weight onto Jesus Christ? Or are you still depending on yourself or something else? And I'll tell you how you can, how you can know. Do you call upon his name? Believers call upon his name. So don't say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and yet live your life as though he didn't exist. You're deceiving yourselves. Believers call in the name of Jesus, just like I told you my kids call dad all the time. Sometimes it seems like 30, 40 times per minute. But you know, that's good. They, they believe in me and they depend on me. And that's what God wants from us. We can believe in Jesus. We can depend on Jesus. And that's really the full thrust of this passage. It's a simple passage. It's not rocket surgery. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We know what we need to do. So I want to close with just a couple of thoughts about how this affects fatherhood. And I need to do this humbly because I'm not good at any of these things I'm about to tell you fathers to be doing. But we can do this, men. In Christ, we can, we can be the kind of father that believes this passage. So just four quick thoughts about fatherhood. Fathers, you are sent into fatherhood to preach the word of Christ to your kids. You were sent out of your comfortable place of not having children into the uncomfortable place of having children to preach the word of Christ to those kids. Fathers, you are the only ones who can preach the word of Christ to your kids as a father. You can bring them and drop them off at youth group and I can preach the word of Christ to them, but I cannot do it as their dad. So how will you do it? How will you preach the word of Christ to your children? One really practical suggestion Again, I hesitate to give any suggestions because, well, my wife's sitting right here, so she knows how the reality is for me in these areas. But one thing that is helpful to us is when we have, if you have young children, the nightly ritual of reading their little kid Bible to them, that alone has been extremely powerful in our household. So it might be something simple, but you need to consider it. And maybe your children are older. I don't know. Let the Holy Spirit direct you in how to do this. 
But you are sent into fatherhood to preach the word of Christ to your kids. Number two, fathers, words are your primary tools when it comes to discipling your children. Now, I know a lot of dads don't, aren't great at the whole communicating with their kid thing, whether they're young children or grown up, already out of the house. I'm not saying that you need to sit down and have mushy-gushy, tear-soaked conversations deep into the night in your PJs, you know. But words are your primary tools. You've got to talk to your kids, and you've got to also know it's harder for your kid to initiate deep conversations with you than it is for you to initiate deep conversations with your kids. The fatherhood role is one that requires initiative. You've got to initiate here. Don't wait for your children to come to you and say, Dad, bestow on me your wisdom about Jesus. Pray for opportunities. Look for ways. How will you explain Jesus to your kids? Another practical note, um, if you have younger children, or if you will have younger children, um, when you discipline your child, that's actually a really good time to explain Jesus to them because a lot of what Jesus has done for us is connected to the Father's discipline of us and his grace and his mercy. I even heard the story of one dad who his son had done something particularly horrible, and he had been praying for a way to instruct his child about Jesus. So he was going to spank him. I don't know how you guys feel about spanking. It's pretty biblical, but we're not going to get into that right now. But he's going to spank his kid, and he put his hand over the kid's rump and spanked himself. He hit his own hand, like, really, really hard, which seems kind of insane. But for him and his kid, that worked as a very clear and good instructional moment for what God did for us in Jesus Christ. So he did that. And he sat his son down and he said, you deserved that spanking. But I want to teach you what God has done for me and for you through Jesus. He took the spanking for you, even though you deserved it. So you are clean and clear. I forgive you. I took your punishment this time. So you'll understand Jesus. How will you explain Jesus to your children? Number three, fathers, Um, belief in Jesus is your kid's only hope, not belief in you. Don't feel like you've got to be Mr. Perfection. You've just got to point them to Mr. Perfection. Don't feel like you've got to act as though you don't ever mess up so that they'll believe you when you talk about Jesus. That will ruin everything. They'll know you're a hypocrite. Instead, Be honest about your imperfection. That will be a much better pointer to Jesus than you trying to act like you've got this whole thing together. They don't need to believe in you nearly like they need to believe in Jesus. Okay, the last one. Fathers, let your kids see you believe in and call upon Jesus. Please don't let the only time your kids see you care about Jesus be in these church pews. As a 
pastor and just as a man, I would rather you, your kids see you care about Jesus out there and you never come in here than your kids see you come in here and care about Jesus but never care about him out there. It's extremely damaging. See, a lot of young men will grow up and they'll get out of youth group and they will be gone. And they won't see any relevance for church until their wife drags them back when they're older. And part of that's because they never saw their dads need it. Let your kids see you depend on Jesus. Let them see you have to pray about things. Look for answers about things. And we can do these things. I mean, God put us in these roles, dads, granddads. He will enable us to do these things, not because we're so great or, you know, we can be so strong, but because he's so great and he's so strong. And he loves our kids even more than we do. So if you have, if you've just been blowing it, if you feel condemned when you get a Father's Day card and it says all these nice things and you're like, I know that that's not true. Don't feel condemned. Receive forgiveness from our Father. Of course you've blown it. So have I. But we have a really good Father who really, really loves us and he really has made a way through Jesus. And all who call out to him, who call upon his name, will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us men to be fathers. Lord, please enable us all, fathers or not fathers, all of us to, Lord, to hear the word of Christ and to believe, to shift our weight onto Jesus, to call on his name for salvation and just all the time. Lord, show us where you would send us and where you would have us to go and preach and proclaim and speak of Jesus. And for all the dads here, I pray that you would just blanket them with your grace, that you would enable them to do supernaturally supernaturally enabled fatherhood to their children, that, that you would, through the dads in this room, pour your truth and your grace and your word about Jesus Christ into the future generations. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.